Harold McGee, and I'm here today not to tell you how I became a scientist, but how I decided not to become a scientist, and still ended up publishing papers in Nature and Physics Today. From a darling, a killer on the loose in New York for a year and three days. My is David Berkowitz, the man police believe to be the son of Sam. You better run for your life. Welcome to episode 100 of The Agency. <laughs> Eugene Napik here in Toronto. And Kenny Minks here in Chicago. I cannot believe it, 100 episodes. I know, you've put up with, uh, with chatting with me for 100 episodes. That's 100 amazing. hours, maybe 200 hours. <laughs> OMG, that's crazy. I know, if, those... they, if the truth were known though, the only difference between what we're doing here in the podcast and what we would normally do is we're recording it. It's so true. It's so true. Um, you know, I mean, I guess I do sometimes, I wouldn't write a list of things I wanted to mention to you when I normally hang out with you, but That's other true. than we, that, we are doing a little bit of preparation just a and list. research and development. Oh, oh yeah. A lot of research and development. Speaking of which, do we want to just jump right into that? What we talked about yesterday? Sure. Let's. Okay. So we set up a, a, a video zoom meeting because I had sent off a couple of pages to Eugene of a, just to kind of prove that I could start to write a mystery story. I think I just wanted to instill confidence in Eugene that I could tell him I could write a couple of pages and I did it. <laughs> yes. And, and this was uh, a little idea we've had kicking around of right. attempting to write a collaborative mystery story. Right. And then we had some encouragement by our friend, Tim. So yes. we might even, we might even write a character named Tim. We don't know. Um, maybe not the main character, but we might put a Tim in there. Um, second of all, so what, what do we want and, to talk and about? Tim, Tim may or may not be a Bigfoot hunter. <laughs> yeah, I think he will be. Uh, so what can we tell people about that? I mean, well, what we really did was, I guess I freaked Eugene out by having already names of characters and stuff. And she started I... to prose. I've got like this five pages <laughs> of prose and clearly... Candy knew all about the characters. She knew what was going to happen. And it's like, how do I even respond to this? I, well, I have no idea. So we didn't know how to collaborate. Right. We didn't know how to collaborate. So basically, we're going to set that aside. Um, that is something that I really did start writing a script for. Anyway, I have a short, uh, probably a 12-page script that I wrote for that with some of those same kinds of characters. For me, it's about the kinds of characters I was writing rather than the format or the concern. So I'm totally fine putting that to the side. We might use it in the future. We might not, but we're setting that aside. And then we had to sort of have a meeting to say, how do we have a meeting? How do we get together and collaborate on this? Because yes. maybe there's a format, maybe there's something that's going to be a better way to talk about these things than just writing back and forth an email. 
So exactly. last, last week we mentioned a virtual whiteboard and basically I tried them and I kept trying them and I would delete accidentally, Eugene accidentally deleted it. It just wasn't happening. It just kept they're collapsing. Really, there's a lot of them out there and they're all created as, um, as software um, productivity driving systems for businesses. Yeah. How to make your employees do more shit for you basically. Yes. Um, and, it, and it was actually really, they're all really <laughs> annoying and difficult to use. They were very difficult to use. And the thing was at first I thought, Oh, I love the one with all the colored post-it notes. So there are post-it notes you could slide around. And I was very attracted to that because I do work with colored post-it notes and um, that works okay for writing a paper that, but on this format, it was not working. It was not consistent. So and you, the would, other you would have the post-it note and you would write something on it and then you would go to move it and it would move the post-it note and leave the text. Yeah, well, that happened. Plus, also, you had to, what I could see was you had to open up the post-it note before you knew what it was about. And what are we going to do? I just want to talk about, um, you know, Sally Trueberry or whatever and find that character. And then I'm going to have to read every post-it note before I find it. No, it was not working. So it looks like, and I can't believe it, we might have to go to Google Doc. Right? Yeah. So what, what yeah. we're looking what we're looking at is having regular Zoom calls to yes. brainstorm. Yes. And we're looking at starting to create a number of documents. Um, say a document for every character we develop, um, a story arc document that will be an ongoing, changing thing. Um, right. Maybe a, a wacky idea brainstorming document, right. um, so that we can each <clears throat> share the document and know what's been added to it. Yeah, and also it just sits there and it's a resource. It's like an image bank. When you're an artist, um, you know, I still build image banks. I don't know if you do, Eugene, but I'll still cut out magazines and notes. And I call it collages. Right, well, that's it too. Because the image bank, I invariably put it into a collage eventually. So now I think something we can share with readers because we're not gonna say everything, but part of this meeting got very interesting once we realized we could both talk about reviewing the big questions. And I'm going to read off the big questions if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so when does this take place? Where that's, does this that's take a place? Very, and both huge questions, right? Yeah. Who is the murdered? Who gets murdered? Oh, no. Who is the murderer? Who gets murdered? Who helps solve it? Is it one, two, three, or more people? Why were they murdered? How they get murdered? And then we wanted, um, we had some other things like we talked about lines and prose. We're not worried about prose. I know that when you open a restaurant, the last thing you should worry about, in my opinion, is the decor. Because in the year that it takes to open up a restaurant or two years, your trend and taste change anyway. So you, you really want to put the decor down to the last bit. Yes. Or and, at least until you own a building. Th this all leads to other questions like, yeah. um, is the book really about the mystery? Or is the mystery what drives you into the book? Well, that's a great question. I think that I, I'm going to go with it. All mystery readers and all lovers of mystery stories, you know, I mentioned it last week, is that we really want that feeling of in a world of chaos, we want someone to catch a misdemeanor, a misjustice, an accident. We want to know the answer and know that it, you know, it's not so much about capital punishment or, or prison time. It's really about, can we get this person? And, and in the chaos of, you know, you're on the bus, you're driving, there's no justice in this society. You just try to get along with everybody and if somebody cuts you off in traffic, I mean, if you're in Chicago, you don't do anything because you're afraid somebody will shoot you. 
So, so somehow at the heart of this, there will yeah. be a puzzle. Oh, there will be a puzzle. We're going to make it fun. We're going to have, um, we are going to do pros, but we're not going to worry about pros for the next few meetings, at least until we really build up suspects. Although either, either or both of us may be writing bits of pros. Absolutely. Shh. We might secretly be writing pros as we speak. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think that, that was a pretty good meeting. I'm just turning back. We, we pre I took about four or five pages of notes, just like lists. And um, I think that what really stumped us was once we hit the part of when is this. So I think a good 40 minutes of our discussion was what does it mean when we choose a time period oh, for yeah. story writing? Uh, we did write some notes on the victim, um, of which we don't know anything about. But it's amazing how many notes you can write and questions and get to someplace without actually knowing what you're doing. What would you call that? Setting up our uh, boundaries, setting up our, our structure for the building? or I, I guess. I, you know, I've, I've been doing creative activities, um, painting and writing for years and years and years, and I'm not sure I still know what I'm doing. Right, right. Uh, well, you know, and I, I, I think I mentioned this to you yesterday. One thing I really like is I'm probably more comfortable looking at something Eugene gives me written and putting my voice in than maybe Eugene is to look at mine because I did ghostwriting. I did ghostwriting on a couple of feature films. Um, and the thing is, one thing I found that was really fun about ghostwriting was that you can walk in on something and the other person actually doesn't see it and you've come into the room and you see it's plain as day. Um, an example of that would be, um, I was working on a little script about stand-up comics and there were two characters, they were dating and one worked with props. She had a little puppet. And the thing is in the comedy world, I don't know if that's still true, but in stand-up comedy at the time I did this uh, ghostwriting, props were really looked down upon. That was like a cheap gimmick to your stand-up. Even guitar playing sometimes among stand-up comedians can be looked down upon. And then you think about the Smothers Brothers who played guitar and did all kinds of great stories. But there was a real poo-pooing of it in the, um, at, at, at a time when I was in the 90s and zeros when I was getting into comedy. And uh, so right away I saw that they were all mocking this woman with the puppet and her boyfriend. But I was like, dude, we got to have this, this boyfriend have sex with the puppet. Uh, you got to have a sex scene in there because, and you know, it was so to me, like you've, you've got this opportunity, you got to use it. So I think that's what's the interesting part to me is what Eugene might pick out that I've Are we going to get banned for puppet sex? No, <laughs> it's fiction. You can say anything in fiction. Oh, okay. You can okay. do anything. I feel better Mark, now. Marquise I was starting Sog. to get worried when you, hey. when you talked about puppet sex. I know. I if you can have Marquita Sod and William Burroughs, you can, nothing is permitted and everything is... Uh, no, nothing is forbidden and everything is permitted. Okay. I, I really enjoyed yesterday's conversation, actually. I was, it was really one of the most fun, definitely the most fun Zoom call I've had in a long time. And definitely the most fun conversation I've had with you in a long time. Except for, of course, our podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so we did work out some settings. And, and such, and uh, we'll probably keep talking about it in the future and giving you little clues when we know more. We don't know enough clues yet. That's right, so, because we are, of course, making it up as we go along, but we are making an effort to do some, um, some groundwork. Definitely, definitely. So, so we'll see. We don't actually know if it's possible for the two of us 
to no, this write might not a mystery work out. book. No, this might not work out. It might it not may work be out. a complete disaster. It might in be. which case, we'll fess up and say we've thrown in the towel, folks. Right, and I'm totally okay with that. And too, if we uh, throw in the towel, we'll of course read snippets of <laughs> <laughs> of the garbage that we're throwing away. Oh, there you go. I love that idea. Um, that's a great idea. And I guess but we'll just uh, it, figure it out but as we go. It may be. It may be that it turns into a book and with our scores of followers on the podcast, right. we'll have a bestseller on our hands. That's right. Wouldn't Which be reminds fun? me, I, before we forget, yeah. I want to thank everybody oh who my keeps God. coming back and listening to this podcast. A uh, hundred of them. That's a lot of Candy and I talking. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, we have um, had guests to try to uh, relieve the monotony of, uh, <laughs> of us. Uh, but, uh, we really do appreciate it, and we especially appreciate our our patrons who have helped pay the bills, yep. help pay our hosting fees, and yep. um, get swag we can send out to people That's and that right. kind of thing. That's right. So thank you so much to everyone, Canada, England, United States. There's a couple people in India, a couple people in Germany, a couple people in you know here and there, and we really, really, we love you guys, and we appreciate you, and we. We just love it. Email us if you feel like it. Email us and tell us anything. Um, at the agency.podcast at gmail.com. That's right. I've got a few notes here because I've kind of watched a few things this week. And um, I wanted to quickly do a callback to the Jillian Lauren series, which I've completely forgot the name of, about the murder of 93 serial killer of 93 people. Oh, I yeah. wanted to say something. There was something in the production value that I thought was really interesting and something that we've dealt with here is that the language people were using, depending on their position in society or where they perceived who and where they were, was that they had used all kinds of language and it was totally accepted in the production because people were saying hooker, whore, slut, prostitute, and sex worker. And every time somebody said prostitute, I found myself jarring because it's totally not um, what we would want to choose to say. But in amongst all the interviews, sometimes people would use that term and they would say, I used to be a prostitute. And um, I just thought it was very interesting that that was all left in there. There was no judgment. And it was almost a historical record of how we looked at sex workers and how we look at women's roles in society. I thought that was... Yeah. Just, the, I can't the show, by the way, work. is called Confronting, Confronting a Serial Killer. There you go. There you go. I just went blank on it. <laughs> Sorry. And I watched the whole thing. I finished it. It was really good. I recommend it. Um, it's maybe a little more touchy-feely and intellectual than other serial killer things. And I think that made it more interesting, too, because it was a very artsy version of... Uh, serial killer movie obviously you've got a very talented aesthetic person in, uh, involved in making it in a certain way and she really stood up for females and I and, and I think young women and young people will have a lot to learn and take from that that series um, you know what everyone is talking about don't you and we may I want to talk about it and then I might want to say okay stop listening now and come back when you finished it um, mayor of Easttown I'm telling you, people, my customers, all kinds of people are watching the show. It's just like The Irishman. When The Irishman came out, and it, it just turned out like mom and dad were watching it. Uh, my family was watching it. My neighbors were watching it. My, you know what I mean? Mayor of yep. Easttown, I haven't heard this many people watch a TV show in my neighborhood in forever. And I also want to include a lot of guys. You know, oh, whatever sure. stereotype I may have thinking that maybe a female-driven character uh, plot, female character plot, 
it's totally worked in this show. So I guess I want to talk about how it feels, Eugene, before we talk about what happened, because I do want to talk about what happened. But how did, how it, the experience of watching it? Yes, because, you know, Stephen King even said he doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) Stephen (laughs) King has watched it and he made a comment. You you know, the the first thing that strikes me is in this town in Pennsylvania, and I've been in to dozens of towns that seem okay. very much okay. like that town in Pennsylvania. Um, everybody either knows everybody or is related to one another. Yeah. Everybody is a mess. Yeah. There's a pervasive uh, drug use, opioid use. Um, and we learn at the beginning of, of it that uh, the only detective in town, most of her calls are drug calls. Yeah. Um, also pervasive, it seems to me, sexual abuse. Yes. I'm going to put that out there too. That seemed like that was more than, for a small town, it seemed like that was a recurring theme. Um, yeah, also, okay, so the atmosphere of this, I don't, you just feel like you're right inside of it. Now, look, I, I, I didn't realize it, but I went and looked for the, direct, the director and creator, his name's Brad Inglesby, and he made a movie I absolutely loved many years, about 10 years ago, called Out of the Furnace with um, Christian Bale and Woody Harrelson. Did you ever see that? I don't think so. Yeah, so I'm now going to look for his scripts. And he also wrote The Way Back with Ben Affleck, but it was originally called The Husband. It's kind of a sports coach story. I recommend it to you, and I love, love, love Ben Affleck. Um, But now I'm going to watch American Woman with Sienna Miller. I, I don't know if I can find it. But anyway, this guy wrote Out of the Furnace. They're all set in Pennsylvania. He's from there. Uh, he did Makes go to sense. film. Yeah, he went to film school, and then he kind of dropped out from what I, I can gather. And yet, what a talented writer, because he knows how to follow a character and how to create things. There's things in this this show that you don't realize are clues or moods or feelings. Yes. Every expression on everyone's face is either fooling you from who the killer is or slightly hinting who the killer is are and there may be more than one killer and at the Um, same time that the character of the protagonist is very well developed and uh it's structured so that the viewer likes and appreciates this character and but has to forgive her for her own behavior yeah she does some bad things she does some bad things and uh, you kind of are going like, I see why you did it. I've been tempted to do something maybe like that in my life too. Um, but I'm not going to. Um, yes, the, there was a, there was a, um, almost a shout out to a touch of evil. Oh yeah, that's true. You mean with the framing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's right. You, know, you only plant evidence on someone you know is guilty. That's right. I think, you know, you've, you've, you've brought up two topics because... Um, I'm going back to the this, this show I told you about, Serial, and then the HBO special that talks about Asnan Saeed, who I went into this long podcast really being open-minded to him being innocent. And I'm not sure if he is innocent or guilty. And my conclusion would be that, one, even a guilty person deserves a fair trial with fair evidence. Yep. Two, I also feel like, did the cops know something and plant evidence bad evidence by the way that's been falling apart because they did know he did it and they couldn't say why they knew he did it because that happens all the time that people do know who did it 
they have some evidence that they can't put into a case or into uh, a court of law because it was it was tainted or something. Um, so, in this story, I think. In this story, meaning Mayor of East Town. Mayor of East Town, you get a lot of that about what is guilt, what is shame, what is regret, what is addiction, and I guess I'd like to talk about it now. And so, I would say, if you haven't finished watching this, and you're you're going to watch it, I would I would come back to this podcast. Do we feel okay doing that? Well. Or do you think sure. that's a cop-out? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be spoilers because um, this is an incredible show. And I really want to talk to you about the kids, Eugene. Um, okay. Because part of it is this character has a child that kills themselves. And we slowly find out about this kid, that they're a drug addict. But you know what? You're like, well, how did he get this way? How come this happened? Why did he kill himself? And we kind of find out by following the town. We kind of know who this kid is because we know there was sexual abuse within organized systems of either government or schools or churches that was undisclosed and unknown or not, or not faced. So there was a slight hint that he might've been part of that. There was somebody said something, is he doing this again? That really made me think, was that also about that kid, Kevin who killed himself? Um, we never do find that out, but it's implied. There's a lot of things in there that aren't really answered unless you are the detective watching the show yourself. Which I think is why it's so incredible. is because during an episode, you start to realize, oh my God, some of these things are clues. Yes, and well, well the, the son who killed himself is not directly a character. We see his son, who is yeah. living with Mare, yeah. who is beginning to exhibit certain behaviors and characteristics that his father exhibited. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Exhibited. It's heartbreaking. And so, um, you know, Mare is terrified. She's looking after this, this boy. And, he's an orphan, yeah. And she's terrified that um, he's going to be just like his father. Yeah, and we also see something else. We see that she's a very caring person with him. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, we also know that, that the mother is, is still on the scene, but the mother, like the son... Yes. Like, is a drug the addict. Mother, the mother, like Mare's son, is a drug addict. Right. And one thing you've heard me say, and one thing I know from watching, um, you're only as sick as your secrets. And unfortunately, drug addicts, we do know that there's child sexual abuse or alcoholics, any addict, that there can be um, abuse in their past or of some kind, any kind. And that also our society does not have a place for allowing a child to have tics. This child has tics, which are potentially Tourette's syndrome. And listen, people with Tourette's syndrome aren't going around necessarily having their lives fall apart. It's just that what it takes to kind of raise somebody, it takes so much energy and plus you have to work. Both parents uh, were obviously career people. Um, we've got a lot of deadbeat dads in this series. A lot of has been written about women's anger in this series because it's extremely rewarding to see somebody give zero fucks. <laughs> I mean, Mare gives zero fucks about almost every kind of thing except for people she cares about and loves. Right. And she loves her people. So something weird happens in this. Um, because her son has died and she couldn't save that child, she's on a mission to save girls that are missing. 
um, the cases have come along and she's got a lot of passion for it and she's breaking a lot of rules in order to get there. She Yes, because there's a tremendous amount of pressure from the town and mm-hmm. the town is everybody she knows or is related to right. uh, to solve this crime. There's there's two missing, at least two missing women. Right, and they the do a third. Yep. And, and then there's a woman, a young woman gets killed. Yeah, and, and right away... we don't know at first, we assume... That it's the same case. Yes, of course. And that we just haven't found, we haven't found the other bodies yet. So what's interesting to me about this is that one, the mother of the missing girl goes on to these news stories to say her daughter's missing. And I just thought that was very beautiful because this is a small town and everyone knows her daughter's missing. Obviously it's in case she's gone to other areas in the United States or the world, obviously like sex trafficking. But it's very interesting that that relationship it's done so subtly between the media and neighborhood, what one would call gossip. I'm not against gossip. I mean, it's not our finer days when we gossip, but gossip anthropologically is us letting us know each other, what we're allowed to do in society, what is acceptable, what's renegade, what's taboo, and also whether or not you're pushing those boundaries because it's okay to break those boundaries. And we also know that um, the young woman who's gone missing, whose mm. mother is looking for her, um, is also um, has drug issues, substance abuse issues, right. um, and I believe was also a sex worker. It's a, yes, I, I can't. I'm going to watch the whole thing now again with Stag, obviously. Because I, know, I think now we're going like, to have to watch it all again as well. Me too, because. But, by the I way, know, all seven episodes have streamed now, so they're all available. Yes, they're all available. Um, it's so you know, it's kind of fun watching it once a week too. I haven't done that for a while mm-hmm. in this pandemic. I haven't really okay. Yes, RuPaul. It's, the, it's the first show in a really long time that I've been caught up with <laughs> uh, watching it right. as it as it streams. Oh my god! Um, although there is another one, and we'll get to that. Uh, okay, that a little bit later. Yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later. But yeah, oh my god! I mean, I, I mean, I'm on fire. So listen. Here you have, she wants to save a child. But, I'm trying to read my own writing. But what happens is, there's another child that she has to save in a very difficult way. Because, back to addiction, you're only as sick as your secrets. Yes. This child cannot be allowed to keep a secret. Yeah, it's it's Sorry, I'm very, laughing at myself crying because it's it's, it's so very beautiful. difficult and very dark. It's very dark. It's very beautiful. I did not expect redemption from this TV show. I'm I'm very angry. I'm not going to forgive them for a couple of things they did in the show. I didn't think they had to do it, but I also understand why they did. I don't agree with it, and I didn't like losing one of the characters, but I do understand why they did it. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if there's a gun in the first act, it has to go off by the end of the play. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's true, isn't it? Yeah, that's Chekhov. That's not me. I wish I made that up. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, oh, so there's just so much is done so well without me realizing, and, and I'm sure you felt the same way Stephen King didn't know either. We're all watching the show and we're getting into the character development and it's making us forget to watch certain things, which is that's the most right. wonderful and, way. And when we a, find out the full picture, we realized that they they hinted at the full picture throughout. Absolutely. All we had to do was put it all together. Yes. So if, you, if you've listened this far, well, I mean, really, I can't wait to watch it again. And I'm going to be looking at two, I'm going to be looking at Ryan's face throughout the whole series. And I'm going to be watching the some of these fathers because these fathers are really the real problem here, which sucks. 
it came back to some of these fathers. Yes. It really did. Because in a way, some of these crimes happened because of these fathers. And there's a pun on there about fathers, too. Yes. So in case we missed it, with the fathers, they actually put a father in there as a fuck-up. And um, even the ending, I, I mean, I, I was very touched by the ending when we see that father, one of the priests talking at the end. His, his service was really beautiful and really amazing, and it affected Mare, and she went back to her world in a different way from that service. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I, I mean, think one of the important things in the whole show is that she hasn't found a way through much of the, the show, much of the series, to get past her own grief. How do you and, do that? How do you it, do that? Yes, of course, how do you do it? And it isn't until the entire, her entire world is in, in spin that yeah. she's able to get yeah. through it and, and begin uh, some kind of process of living in the world again. Yes, and you know, some of the bad things that she did, I also wanted to tie this up too, was some of the bad things, just because I just want to talk to you about it, some of the, and how incredible the writing is, that she, she did do some bad things. And even she would, she was not supposed to go chasing after the bad guy. She was supposed to wait for backup. Remember, she's like, "Yeah, I'll wait for backup," and then she rushes to the crime scene. Oh, you, you know, you're like nobody ever waits for backup in Hollywood. Nobody waits for backup. But the interesting part is that that willfulness is also what made her be a basketball star. Yes. Of so course. we find out that she's the girl that does the the great score, the basketball. They never talk about that game ever again. It's only in the first episode. It wasn't it's right, until it was to set up her character. Yes, and it, but it, it wasn't until then that I realized, oh my God, this ties into who she is. This stubbornness. And the, also, a patriarchal society resents women who are willful and stubborn. We call them bitches. And if you're pushy and anything else, and here it is, all of those things were her downfall, but all of them were her redemption. And they were the redemption for the community too. Not just a basketball game, but they were redemption for her friendships, her relationships, her mother, everyone, her ex-husband, everything. I mean, unbelievable story. Just fantastic. With an incredible amount of detail. I mean, this Detail in terms of the character development. Yes. In terms of all the relationships. You know, I found myself asking Sheila questions along the way. It's... That's her sister's husband, right? Right. No, yeah, I okay. wish I had you know, asked that trying to too. figure it all out. I know. I know. Well, I'm, I'm putting him up there right now. And he's not a novelist, but I'm putting him right up there with Cormac McCarthy right now. I mean, wow. what a brilliant, brilliant writer he is. Um, and, you know, I, like I said, I love Out of the Furnace. It didn't do that well. It's, it doesn't have a great rating, but I absolutely loved it because it feels like Mayor of Easttown. So if you haven't seen it and you like Mayor of Easttown, I would go back and watch The Way Back and out of the furnace. And this week, I'm going to try and track down American Woman because I'm really curious now. Also, um, the, the star of the star of Mayor of Easttown, uh, who is Kate, Kate Winslet. Winslet, is so good in it. She's she's she really, owns this character. Oh, she's she one of my favorite it, actors. Period. She I does told it you. so so yes. believably. Yes. Like you don't you don't think it's Kate Winslet, even though she's a very Not recognizable figure. You just she is the character. She totally owns it. She really does, and her acting is unbelievable. And the, the cinematography, the camera operator loved her and knew how to film her too. Because, you know, to get past her incredible um, good genes, she looked like a working person sometimes, many times. They definitely dolled her up a couple of times, but so many times they photo, they lit her face so it 
it so it she looked tired and she yeah. looked really on edge yeah. Yeah. and um and looked like someone who has no more fucks to give that's right that's right <laughs> zero fucks given and um you know there's a lot of women out there that relate to that and i think after a pandemic i think there's a lot of people out there that relate to that because sure. it is interesting that this has come out after we've been isolated to watch such intense characterizations and 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 still have that feeling of like I'm so sick of this fucking society and this world that there is no way for the community to help people grow up and live. It feels like it's futile. It's also very good to see such a great portrayal of a law enforcement officer too, um, with all their their problems and all of their benef- their their bonuses. Yes, it's it's a very three dimensional treatment of the character. And uh, we should tell our listeners that it just streamed on HBO. Right. And in Canada, uh, you can get it on Crave as well, which is oh, how Crave. we access okay. it. Okay, yeah, it's Hulu here. Okay, Hulu okay. here and Crave in Canada. So, yeah. Um, sorry if we did a spoiler and you didn't turn it off, but uh, we did warn you. Um, but <laughs> in any case, if, if you can access HBO or Crave or Hulu, just go watch it immediately. Or right. if you can't, make friends with someone right. who can. Yes. And yes. go watch it immediately. Right. We want to hear what you think on this one. Yeah, definitely. Agency.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, are we right? Is it brilliant? <laughs> hey, you know, I was a little late to start this podcast today because um, I was cooking, I taught steak how to cook a steak. So I said, you're going to do it. Here's the rules, cook it. And then I had also made, um, I told you I was going to do some Was French he cooking. able to not touch it? Yes, he was able to that, not that's touch That's the it. hardest thing for people cooking a steak. They can't yes. help themselves. They have to poke at it. No, I know. And I, I even fall into that. So I actually did poke it. I had to look underneath. And he was so good. He said, you told me just to leave it in the pan for five minutes. So he did good. Five minutes each side, 10 minutes in the oven, and it was delicious. Um, I do it in the oven now because I always had problems cooking it inside. And somebody at the, the butcher told me, hey, here's a trick. Just put it yeah, in the oven. Great idea. Yeah. And then you can forget yeah, so about you it. sear the two it. sides and then, and then cook exactly. it in the other for sure. Exactly. So um, I, I've been working on my mother's sauces. That's how I'm going through into French cooking. I mentioned last week that I was going to start French cooking, right? And because we'd eaten some food in New Orleans, and I just was like, why don't I make this at home? And I've got the uh, menu from Antoine's where we ate in New Orleans. We've eaten there a few times over the years. And I felt really like bougie after I said I was going to be cooking French cooking. And I kind of want to come back. This is also a little fix-it corner. Is that French cooking actually isn't really bougie because it's post-revolutionary food and it's democratic cooking ultimately because it got developed after the French Revolution because the monarchy had all of these chefs and they would cook and cook and they had every resource every animal, everything at their, and, and all the staff you could ever want. After the, were, um, the revolution, these cooks and chefs were left like without jobs and without staff and without resources, but they had their knowledge. And then you had a dem- democratic society kind of blossoming. You had the merchant class, you had a uh, working class, and people wanted to go to restaurants. So these chefs started opening up these restaurants and they would kind of, Um, shortcut and solve the problem of um, cooking from cooking for two weeks they could cook down to two weeks two days and make food and and fresh cooked food and that's why sauces are so amazing they're actually a convenience food 
because well, you cook a steak and then you make the sauce and yeah, go ahead. If you're going to get involved in French cooking, I would like <laughs> to recommend um, a book written by my uncle, Harold Knappick. Oh yeah, of course. It may still be available. It's called Haute Cuisine Without That's Help. Right. Well, it came out in the early 70s. Yeah. And Harold... Um, uh, among other things, he was also a spy. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> details. Um, he also um, summered uh, for I think close to a decade with um, with uh, Alice Toklas after Gertrude Stein had died, right. and um, he cooked for her and um, her friends, who included people like. Uh, Picasso and Man right. Ray, and right. and so he had this incredible cool. story. Uh, but he was a, a, a trained French chef, uh, and he wrote this book. And as well, um, I believe he wrote some articles in Gourmet magazine, and um, was featured in in some magazines in the uh, in the states. Well, what's, uh, so I'm going to recommend it. Oh, cuisine yeah. without help well, by Harold Knappick, my actually, uncle. I'm going to try and track down a copy like as soon as we finish this recording. But I have, because I was thinking about your uncle, but I also didn't, I'm, I'm going to get a, Julia, a couple of Julia Child's books too. But I actually didn't go through this with Julia. I've gone a different route. Um, I picked up some ratios for how many eggs to how much lemon, right? Right. But I'm using On Food and Cooking, The Science and Lore of the Kitchen by Harold McGee. Do you know that book? No, I don't. Well, this is a crazy ass book. And in fact, it's, it's really responsible and it relates to the history of um, commercialization of cooking because it's the science and lore of the kitchen. And he wrote this book. It's, I don't know, 800 pages. Uh, yeah. 800 pages. And I've got a reissue from 2004, but it was originally published in 1984 and it changed restaurants. It changed all dining everywhere because he just went into the, um, the background of food in a certain way. And I'm also using Culinary Fundamentals, the American Culinary Federation. I'm using those, these two books really for technique and for confidence. It's probably not the right way to do it, but I just decided to kind of, it's almost like backwards. But it what, did give what's, me some What's confidence. the title and the author, again, slower of the, oh, sure. of the first book? On Food and Cooking, The Science and Lore of the Kitchen by Harold McGee. It is considered a food Bible. It's, um, it revolutionized cooking in restaurants in... Um, in the United States, but all around the world. And it's influenced everyone you've seen on any cooking show or celebrity chefs. It's, you know, it, it, it and it's kind of the uncle to um, molecular gastronomy. Um, he kind of created that too. He's considered being the person responsible so for that. So he's the guy we should blame for that. We can blame them for that. But if you look at it after the French Revolution, those guys did the same thing. They found a way. Sure, but to I mean, make... do you really need to get foam when you go out for dinner? I don't need foam. <laughs> no, you don't need foam. But okay, style. but I like I'm not to the a... foam guy. <laughs> I'm not the foam guy either, but I do love tasting there's, something. There's good. always some kid on those cooking competitions who's the foam guy. Yeah, yeah, right? for sure. You know, some geeky looking guy who's been living in a lab, and he starts he starts making his uh, uh, making his weird concoctions. Sure. Have you ever tried that kind of food? Molecular gastronomy? Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, most people are hungry afterwards. I remember um, Anthony yeah. Bourdain went with his wife to the one that's here. There's a very famous one, Alina. Alia? Alina? Here in um, Chicago, which I can't afford to go because it's $500 without the wine. And, um, and then there's a $700 option, too. If I could, I would go with my sister if she really wanted to. Otherwise, it's not my thing. 
But Anthony Bourdain said his wife loved it. He couldn't care less. So okay. you're in, you're we're we're going to put on one side molecular gastronomy yes. and on the other side, barbecue. True. I'm going to the barbecue. Okay. Well, that's fair. And also, um, I watched a barbecue show this week. It's about four or five episodes on Netflix. And I absolutely loved it called High on the Hog. And I should tell you, this morning, <laughs> I caught up and I oh, watched the rest of the series. Yes. Did you enjoy it? Um, yes, I enjoyed it. I, uh, there were certain things about it that bothered me. But yeah. overall, I'm going to say uh, that it was quite excellent. It's, uh, it's an African-American history told through yep. food traditions. Yep. But it's also a history of a broader America influenced by by African-American food tradition. Right. This is the blues, Ken Burns blues for food in a way. And yes. um, I freaking loved it because I didn't know mac and cheese. I am now going to try mac and cheese. Um, they had shown, so basically, let me put it this way. The premise of the first episode is our host, Stephen, takes us to Africa and he goes with the woman who wrote the book, High on the Hog. Francis, and she's an amazing personality. I kind of want to get her bo her books now. I was thinking she's, that too. Yeah, she's yes. an amazing personality. And I mean, I found it very beautiful that they went to some of the sites where people were taken from Africa to the United States, and they tasted the food there. And you could see almost immediately some of the flavors that have traveled 400 years and thousands of miles that have influenced American popular food. And um, they came back and they do something with mac and cheese where she cooks, the woman talking to him cooks it in half water, half milk. Yes. The pasta. Yeah. I was like, mind blown. I've never, I've never heard of that before. Never it's heard of it. I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. And um, I was so thinking exactly the same thing. I want to make mac and cheese with milk now. I know. And, it, and to find out that mac and cheese really is rooted in African-American food and from Africa is just mind-blowing. So all of the techniques and so much of the food um, – they're preserving this much like you might try to preserve a language. And there's just people who are passing that on through each other, like any tradition, like music. Right. Yes. And um, I love the show. I thought, listen, that woman was the larger than life personality, but I found him to be, I suspect he's quite a character. He's a sommelier and a food writer. And I believe a cook at one point, did you notice when somebody he turns, he goes, you guys don't realize I can actually cook. Yes. Like they were talking to him and you're like, he was being polite. He was being a host. He was letting everyone else shine. So he looked a little bit like he was yes. kind of. As a, as a host. And it's one of my few criticisms of it. <laughs> he couldn't get any more laid back. Could he? He was laid back, but I thought he was get That was his way to give them their moment to shine. It well, was really sure. about yeah. the people talking. Um, so he had a gentle way about him, which on the one hand was, uh, quite compelling, but on the other hand, was kind of annoying. Um, I guess I really was, liked him. This the tenor of the show is it's very intelligent. It's scholarly, but it's scholarly yeah. in a folky dokey kind of way, which I um, liked. And it it really shows a great deal of reverence for mm -hmm. the the history and traditions and. The, leg the legacy of the food coming from West Africa and for the people who are living those traditions today, whether right. they're people making the mac and cheese or making barbecue yep. or, or whatever, whatever it is. And um, I, think I've, I think I've talked about this before that my friend who's from Britain, she lives here in Chicago. She'd been here for a few months and then 
she was really bummed. She was having culture shock and she realized I need some of my food. So they went to a UK store, a British import store here and got her Marmite and her tea that she was used to and custard sure. and different things. And it helped her feel more like she was at home. That's right. And, food, and in food Chicago. contributes to the sense of community. Right. And that's one of the, in the first episode, that's one of the um, narratives they point out was that first of all, you're bringing human trafficking, but while you're doing it, you're bringing, they're getting shit to eat on the, on the boats, shit to eat. But they wanted them to have some of their familiar foods back in the States, over in the States. So they brought some of the, they brought rice, they brought beans and brought spices and cooking That's right. And and there's a lot of discussion about how rice in South Carolina is a direct result of the slave trade. Um, Again, I was blown away. For me, I did not know that. I was freaked out. Prior to Africans being brought to America, the Americans couldn't grow rice for shit. For shit. I know. I was blown away. Um, you know, there's so much, and, and, and for what you call folky, I, I call it oral tradition where they, it's just that feeling when that guy tasted some of the food, he was like, oh my God, I haven't tasted this since my grandmother. Yes, and, and there's a certain sentimentality that goes along with that. You know, well, on the one hand, they're dealing with a very difficult issue, the the issue of hundreds of years of a slave trade. Yeah. And it's it's just heartbreaking and riveting. And then you see a kind of sentimentality for the the traditions, grandma cooking, yes. uh, that taste that I've had since I was a, a young kid. Yes, and you brought up an argument I would have is that as much as we might say we don't like something being sentimental, the purpose of sentimentality is to help enforce our memory and help us keep those oral traditions strong and bring in you want you want just enough sentimentality to hook your audience. Yes. So and, and through know. the series, which is what is it four episodes? I or think five? it was maybe four. Three. Somewhere between Um, four and five. It features numerous individuals who have had some kind of contribution to that Mm -hmm. tradition of African-American cuisine, Mm -hmm. um, including a fascinating guy who was a pastor and a barbecue pit boss. And he had his barbecue joint attached to his church. Road trip. Road trip. We have to go there. Oh my God. And he's only been doing it for 15 years or 11 yes, years. I, I think they mentioned in- that, that, that after they interviewed him, um, for some reason he had to finally retire and shut oh, it down. Oh, I know. But he took over for somebody who was doing it before him. And the thing is, you know, I love a church. I love food at church. And you know, at the Buddhist temple, at one point I was in charge of a group to do, um, tea service after thing. Well, I was like, I'm not just having tea. We're bringing food, dude. We are bringing all the food we possibly can. And we had some great lunches. And, and, you know, on a memorial at the Buddhist temple, on the first Sunday of every month, there's a, a big board in front of the temple where all the people who died in Japanese um, tradition, they, they, they memorialize the month you were passed away in every month at the temple. So you, you have your name at the front or the name of your loved one at the front. And that, the families of that deceased person provide lunch that day after service. And you know, those kinds of things are so amazing. It's one of the reasons why I loved going to the Japanese temple is because just that kind of thing that's in, in place there. And um, you know, the, the relationship between church and food is pretty cool in the United States. I don't know what it's like in Canada or other countries, but I it's pretty say. amazing. Yeah, I can't say. But certainly 
um, restaurants are very busy after church in the United States. People go from church to, to have lunch with their family. Many they times. Were, they were able to show in, in the series by using particular foods, they were able to show the African legacy yes. um, in in America. And one of the foods they talked about was the yam versus the sweet potato. Oh, that was and amazing. It really was very interesting because there's some confusion over what's a yam and a, and a sweet potato. Right. And we'll talk about having candied yams at yeah. Thanksgiving, but in fact, that's candied sweet potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> because mostly it's difficult to get yams here. In yeah. some areas, yes, but, and, and they showed yams and it's like, oh yeah, we don't have those. <laughs> they we were like potatoes. two feet long. Yeah, yeah, they're like these big, they look like roots. Big, they look like, oh, uh, what's that plant, cassava? It looks a bit like that, actually. It looked like huge roots. You're right. I love this show, and I would really recommend it. I thought it was fantastic. The, the other thing that I thought what really uh, drove home that the African legacy was when they were talking about okra, and they said the the word oh. for okra was it in in Benin? That gumbo. The, the gumbo. word for okra was gumbo. It's like, oh, there oh, you yeah, go. Of course it is. Right, because it's a sauce thickening agent. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, okra's from Africa. It's amazing. And you just think of um, all the south and Louisiana and that uh, it's actually called gumbo. So great the series. Okra. Yeah. Great series. Highly recommend it. Yeah. And you learn a lot. And you it's really about um, the beautiful, um, just let's not forget where things come from. I loved it just like I like Margaret Visser and um, her anthropology of food. So, which I've recommended a couple of times, you must read Much Depends on Dinner. Fantastic book. If it's not on our list, Eugene, we better put it on there. Um, okay, um, yeah. you'll send me that later and, and yeah. I'll put the list of yeah. new books on, on the list. So I've been making a couple of sauces. I made a Marchand de Vin, which is wine merchant sauce. Mm. And um, it's delicious with, um, how do you say? One, one thing that's funny is in Harold McGee's book, what I call mother sauce he was calling parent sauce. And I thought that was really funny because I kind of buckled at that because I'm like, no, why can't it be mother sauce? And I went, hey, all the times I want to change it from he to she, it's my turn now to give it to parent. <laughs> but mother sauces are um, known in French cooking, right? You've got um, the Marchand de Vin is green onions, mushrooms, wine, beef stock, and garlic as opposed to Bordelais sauce, which is shallots, bone marrow, red wine, and demi-glace. So they're similar. So I made that, and that's what we had on steak before the podcast today, mm. why I was in a rush and told you I couldn't make it on here. Oh, so because you were having a feast. I was having a feast, and I was dipping my um, steak into um, my mm. Marchand de Vin, my wine merchants. And so uh, it was a successful venture making it? Very successful, and my hollandaise was killer. I, could, I couldn't even believe it. And then with all this cooking, I made, um, I made my tonic uh, syrup, which is with juniper berries, uh, coriander seed, cardamom pods. And did you mix this tonic syrup with the gin? I did. Not until later, until I poured it. You keep it in a syrup form. for It can last for about two weeks. And so you put a little titch of it into your glass. You put the gin in over ice. Then you put the syrup in. And then you fill it with soda water. You're the only person I know who has ever made such a thing. You know what I like? I like cooking that makes you feel like you're a, a, a magician or a wizard or a witch. <laughs> sure. And I think that's why I like sauces. I, 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 I want to be a saucier because it's all kind of finicky stuff. And then you can hold it 
and pull it out the next day and eat it. You've already done the cooking. Yeah. Um, I wanted to list off the other mother sauces. Okay. Um, oh, bachamel. Espagnoli, which is, okay, so bachamel is milk, flour, and butter. And flour is what was put into these sauces as a shortcut after the... Wait, that would be the white sauce you put on your chicken fried steak, right? Correct. And that would be after the revolution. That was a democratic recipe where they could feed more people, regular people. And they made a lot of these sauces and recipes because they wanted to attract this whole new breed of people who wanted to eat and, it and seems try to be, foodies. It seems to me you make a bechamel as one step in making your mac and cheese. You would do that, yes. Now, I don't, yes, you would. I would make a bechamel, absolutely. Then you put the cheddar into it. Yes. And I use really sharp cheddar. I don't go for mixing other, other things. I might even throw some fresh Parmesan in there and melt it around too. But you do make a bechamel for your mac and cheese. Thank you. Then the espagnole is brown stock and roux. So roux is the invention since the, uh, they couldn't have all those staff and reduce sauces because what the chefs in the monarchy did. Oh, so roux is a quick sauce. That's what I'm saying. They didn't yes. use it before because they could reduce the stock. They could have someone watching that stock for four days and make a big rich stew. They had to find a way around that. And yet it's make, funny because we don't think of roux as a, as a quick sauce because you have to spend, oh, 10 or 15 minutes with it. I know it's true because that's, again, we've, that's why I said I wanted to address this idea that I was going to be cooking bougie when really these sauces go back to medieval times at least, at least. Um, hollandaise is clarified butter and egg yolks and velleté is white stock with roux. Now it's so funny because I texted my daughter the other day, I said, can you reduce chicken stock? I don't know. I get these brain farts one time, sometimes about food. Of course you can reduce chicken stock and that would be a white, sometimes it's with veal. A veal shank you would put in there. I don't like veal. But um, yes, of course you can reduce chicken stock. One time I texted her, I said, I think I invented something. Chicken gravy mixed with uh, marinara. And then we realized, oh, for God's sakes, that's cacciatore. You didn't invent that. <laughs> 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 but I really think sometimes I'm in the... That's why I like going with this book. I kind of want to go into my dream state because I'm daydreaming while I'm cooking. And I do like to follow a recipe and, 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 and a very... Like making that tonic, I actually bought a scale to make my tonic syrup. I'm not a, a scale person, but I, I, will, I will do it for baking and for picky things. Um, so anyway, those used to be called mother sauces, but I noticed in his book, he's calling them parent sauce. And you know what? I'm going to embrace that too. Okay. I had forgotten that I didn't even notice that before. Um, so yeah, I read about all the techniques and everything and just enjoying it and relaxing and That's great. kind of getting into it. Yeah. I have a contribution also for the comfort Good. food diner that, that really came about in, in kind of a backwards way um, because, well, I guess I have to introduce a new uh, segment, which is yeah. the DIY the corner. Okay. I love the it. The DIY corner, not the DIY. Which is kind of what we do talk about. I always say DIY too. I don't know why. Yes. But, but the do-it-yourself corner. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I've, as I've talked about many times already on this podcast, uh, my buddy East Texas Red and I are going in August, assuming Uncle Dougie, our premier, allows us to go camping uh, this yes. summer, uh, yes. which we're hoping happens. We're going to be doing a, a trip to Quetico. Uh, and um, one of the things that we had talked about in our last planning meeting was, did we really want to haul a, a propane Coleman <laughs> stove along with right. us? Because we're going to have 22 portages. So the more we can keep the weight down or the less weight we have, the uh -huh. easier it is to do the, the portages. So um, I decided to think about some alternative because 
uh, I, I'm the cook. And, well, this uh, is how the jerky came about, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, I, I wanted to have an alternative to uh, a propane stove. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I started looking where, where you look for everything of this nature on the YouTube machine. That's right. And, um, and, and started... you want something outside the box, right? Where I think where you're coming from is, is there something that might have a couple of purposes and be yes. useful and yet a stove? That's what I'm guessing here. That's what I'm so, guessing. Um, what I ended up making was what you might call a twig stove uh-huh. or a hobo stove. Ooh, I love it. And um, in combination with an alcohol stove. <laughs> now you're talking so, my language. So in other words, if uh, you could use twigs or whatever forest debris you can find to fuel your stove, but if it's been pouring rain for three days and that's very difficult, you also haul out your very, very lightweight little alcohol stove, pour in some alcohol, light it, and it fits inside <laughs> the hobo stove that I right, made right. as an alternative. Well, see, I thought you were going to make a still. When you said alcohol, I'm like, yeah, let's use those twigs and make a, well, some alcohol. No, I, did, I did not make a twig. Uh, <laughs> I did not make a, a still. I, I did make a twig stove. Uh, and the way I did it was I... Uh, I needed a, a, a tin can. Yeah. And the size tin can I was looking for is the size tin can that you often see tomato juice comes in or pineapple juice comes in. So large. So it's it's a tall can, yeah. but it's not the huge it's not restaurant, can size It's not can. restaurant supply. That's right. Although you could make a stove that large. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to take up that kind of space. So. Right. Um, I wanted a, I wanted something that took up no more space than a, a tomato juice can. Okay. So I went out to my no frills and I looked on the shelves <laughs> for what was the cheapest thing they had at the no frills uh, that came, that provided the can that I needed. What'd you get? Well, I got tomato juice. Okay. Then you could cook with it too. So yes. So what I did, and I'll just digress before I get into how I made the hobo stove, I'm going to digress over to what I made. Right. Um, I took the tomato juice. First, I had a glass of tomato juice. I don't think I've had a glass of tomato juice in 30 years. Right. It just isn't something that I, I do. I don't know. I don't either. Drink the tomato juice. Except Bloody Mary now and then. And it's not, I'm not against it. I just, right. you know, um, so I had this. <laughs> was this, it good? Was it yes, delicious? I put, I put a little bit of salted pepper in it. Oh, Because damn. when I was a kid, that's what my mom used to do. Yeah, mine too. Nice. Mine, so mine I had a glass too. of tomato juice and <laughs> then I, uh, I had a casserole dish and uh, she was out at the store and I asked her to pick up a cabbage and I, I did a braise of cabbage, onions, short ribs, and some sliced up pieces of kielbasa. Okay. Hold on. With you, tomato oh, juice. I, I, I feel like we missed a step or I wasn't listening properly. So you opened up one end of the, of the, of the tin. Is that yes. right? Yes, I took the lid off. You took the lid right off after you poured your tomatoes. Then you turned it upside down and cooked on the top of the can? No, 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 no. I I made the stove for later. I'm just digressing over to what I did with the tomato juice. Oh, okay. Because I had all this tomato juice. I wasn't going to waste the tomato juice. No, so you've got a cabbage. I'm so sorry. I didn't miss that. I had a cabbage, onions, (laughs) short ribs, and we had some kielbasa in the fridge. Oh, okay. Um, Now, Sheila uh, was not going to eat the short ribs. She would eat the kielbasa because she thinks it's vegetarian. Right, right. And um, 
because its garlic content is so high that it qualifies as a vegetable. That's the right, logic. Right. Uh, so, but she she's not against having the short ribs cook in the same stew as the as the cabbage. You know what I'm saying? So I long do. as the short ribs come out before I yeah. serve. Gotcha. So. So I did this braise. I, I had the tomato juice and I had various spices and some herbs from the garden. Mm. And I had the short ribs and I had uh, cabbage and onions and mushrooms because I had some mushrooms around. And I kind of mixed them all together and poured it on the tomato juice and covered it with tinfoil and put it in the oven at uh, uh, 320 degrees Fahrenheit for about three hours. Wow, did it reduce the tomato sauce? It reduced the tomato sauce some, but not totally because nice. uh, it's got a, a tinfoil lid on it. Right, right, um, right. But it did start to caramelize that yes. cabbage yes. Um, and make it just super yummy. Oh, it sounds so and, good. And um, of course, you also got the fat from the short ribs coming uh-huh. in and mixing in with it, uh, just adding a little bit more love. It was really something wow. else. It was very, very wow. good. And... Now I need you to walk me through this hobo stove. Yes. Okay. The hobo stove. What you wanted, the basic concept is that you want a a stove, which you can feed twigs on the bottom. So you're going to cut you into it. So the first thing you do is you need to, you need to raise the bottom. That's the first thing. So, um, what do you mean raise the bottom? R A I Z E. R-A-I-S-E. Okay, thank you. So you want an elevated bottom. Elevate the bottom, okay. Okay, and what you want to do is you want to have vent holes in the tin can along the bottom. So if you can imagine for a moment um, a number of rectangular holes cut out of the can, and a hobo would use a can opener to do uh-huh. this. Um, okay. I use a Dremel tool. I All the hobos I know have a can opener in their back pocket well yeah because you needed <laughs> to open your hands you, how about their knife yeah their, you could do that jack knife. yeah that works okay, um, but if you happen to be the proud owner of a dremel tool <laughs> with a, a metal cutter it's way easier it's and true. you can do a swankier job yeah so imagine along the bottom inch and a half of the can around it um i cut out a number of rectangles that were say um, an inch oh, and a half by I got an inch. You. Like jack lantern teeth. Yeah, I got yes, you. Like a cat's exactly rook. Right. Like a rook. Okay, got it. So you don't want, you can't cut all the way around because then the can would collapse. Correct. You have to leave a lot of structural integrity in place, but you want to be able to have air that comes in. Okay. And then I took some hardware cloth, which is steel mesh, which I had left over from the catio build last summer. And, right. um, <laughs> and I fashioned. Um, out of that, I cut a round circle, and then I cut a U, uh, an upside-down U. So that was like a stand in the bottom of the can. And then on top of the stand, I put a round piece of mesh that was oh, just slightly less than sure. the size of the can um, to make a mesh floor. Right. So the mesh floor is now it's now elevated an inch and a half above the bottom of the can. Okay. okay? Yep. Um, now, at that level, I then cut out another rectangle on one side of the can that was about, oh, four inches by two and a half inches. Okay. That's where you feed the wood. I gotcha. 
Okay. I can, I can envision it completely. So now what you need is you need to create a draft. And since you're going to have a pot on top of the stove, you need more vents at the top. So just like you had on the bottom, you want to have vents along the top of the can. And, and just to make it different, I made those vents triangular in shape. Okay. Just for aesthetic reasons. Right. I thought it would look nice. Right. Then um, I cut a number of other triangles, but I only cut the top two sides. Imagine a triangle with a flat bottom and I just cut the top two sides mm -hmm. so that when I pushed in, I created a number of tabs. Does that make sense? Yes. So I've now created a number of tabs at the same level, about two inches, two and a half inches from the top of the can. These tabs, when pushed in, will now hold another piece of mesh right. cut round. So that's where you put your alcohol stove if you're going to use it. <laughs> you don't right. have to use no, the alcohol perfect. stove. No. You could use either twig or alcohol, one or the other. Okay. So right. that's, the, that's the stand for the alcohol stove. And then on the very top of the can, I... I laid another piece of steel mesh such that it just folded over the outside top of the can. And that's in case you're going to use a pot or a cup that's smaller than the, the diameter of the can. Right. Make sense? Yes. So uh, the technology is very much like... Uh, what you may see people who use charcoal barbecues often use a charcoal chimney. It's the same kind of thing. You create this ventilated column and it lights very fast and the heat and um, the draft from the fire goes up the column, right? right? Creating a concentrated stove. Yeah, so no, it makes it'll... perfect sense. Um, you can do it with roll up cardboard maybe or something. No, that's good. But you know what? You, you, need, you could use that alcohol stove for making coffee. Are you planning on making coffee on this thing? Yes. Or going without? Yeah, okay. You know, oh, yes. Then, this, will be, this will be my standard thing for, me, for, for my coffee pot. Right, because otherwise, you, can you do a fire for cooking fish on the beach or something? Or Of you, course, you, we'll, have a, we'll have a fire pit at right. every campsite. Oh, you will. Um, okay. But if you just want to make coffee and you want yes. it quick, oh, you, yeah. can get, you can get a twig stove roaring hot right. in about no, three brilliant. minutes. It's brilliant. It's very, brilliant. very fast. And it's pretty and light. It's very light. It only weighs probably 10 ounces. Wow. Uh, so when you get to your campsite and you're going to make coffee, all you have to do is gather up some dry twigs. The smaller, mm. the better. Mm. And... Uh, maybe a few bigger pieces as well. And you start the fire with the, the small twigs and you add the bigger pieces as the fire gets going. Nice. And um, once the fire is really quite, quite hot, it's about uh, six or seven minutes to, <laughs> to boil up a pot of water. Right. It's not bad. Not bad right. at all. It's perhaps a little bit longer if you're using the alcohol stove option. Right. So I could cool. have made my own um, DIY alcohol stove out of 
Pepsi cans, but yes. I didn't do it. I, I thought when I, when I looked <laughs> for reviews of these uh-huh. things, um, what I discovered is that the, the pop can alcohol stoves were didn't dangerous. last very long. Yeah. Oh, okay. Plus, I thought they might be dangerous. <laughs> they no, no more or less dangerous. So I did a test and I ran a video and I will post the video on our oh, Facebook site so people oh, great. can see it. Great. I think um, I, I've done some hobo cooking. Um, we had a hobo cribbage club at one of my jobs in Old Town. And so I made hobo, hobo apples where just in soup cans, I put in, um, a, I put in parchment paper and then I put an apple and brown sugar and oatmeal and butter and you can't go wrong with that. A bit of cinnamon, super easy. And it looks really cool to serve this cooked apple in a, in a soup can. Oh, yeah. I can't believe restaurants aren't doing that. <laughs> well, they're probably, you know, there is one that is There's got to be a hobo restaurant somewhere. I'm sure. Um, I, I just love hobo lore and anything to do with hobos. And, um, you know, I think there's a thing. I'm trying to remember whether I actually did it or not. You take a tuna can, a tea light, and a paper bag, and you fry an egg, holding it over the flame. Nice. Yeah. That is such a cool thing. I want to, I want to do it this summer. I want to try that. You, Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest. Yes. Uh, the late Utah Phillips. Uh, he, he once rode the rails and he knew many, many hobos. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he said there were really like three classes of hobos. Okay. Which called hobos, tramps, and bums. Uh-oh. I see where this is going. <laughs> and what he said was... Um, Hobos work oh, no. and wander. Uh-huh. Tramps drink and wander. <laughs> and bums dream and wander. Oh, my God. Well, that's pretty cute. Um, yeah, I haven't, seen too many, I haven't seen too many hobos yet. And now they're called gutter punks or street punks. Or, well, because you, know. you got to have your own name. Yeah. And they look the same everywhere. They're called crusties in a more derogatory term. Okay. There's yeah. actually a YouTube channel I follow that I'm going to recommend called Hobo Shoestring. My oh. buddy East Texas Red turned me on to it. And he's a guy who at different times has had little apartments, but he's not very good at, uh, <laughs> at staying home. He prefers oh, okay. to ride the rails. Okay. And along the way, he, you know, he was able to equip himself with um, what he needed to make YouTube videos. Oh, so he's wow. got a go a GoPro camera, and right. people have sent him stuff so that he has you know a good pack and a warm blanket and his bindle and everything. And nice. he goes on, he rides the rails, and he films all of this and tells you the stories and all about the rail yards. Oh, it's pretty fascinating. That. Put um, that on Facebook for us. Please. Yeah, for sure. He's a very very interesting, uh, very interesting fellow. Uh, last I checked in, he was moving up to Alaska. I don't know how that worked out. Ugh, I don't. I don't know. But he liked Alaska because he, he thought it was one of the last places where you can live well, free. Right. Have you read Into the Wild? By John Krakauer? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, maybe we should learn from that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not so. for everyone. Even the people that live in Alaska are like, dude, you don't go outside in the winter. Um, you know, do it yourself. I finished watching. I'm all caught up on Escape to the Chateau. Oh, yeah. And what a great show. Isn't it delightful? Yes. And I found two or three. It's just they're delightful. It doesn't matter what they they do. No, it doesn't. And you know what? I really got into her crafts and his fix-it stuff. I love that boat. Did you see the one with the boat? Yes. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I want to go and stay on that boat. And um, they've just utilized that whole place. And then Grandma's Cafe, (laughs) they fixed up their mother's place. 
it's really, really good. And it ended on the Christmas episode. It was so nice. Usually what happens is Angel dreams up some <laughs> crazy-ass idea right. and then tells Dick about it. And you just see the look on Dick's face as he realizes he has to make it be so. I know, I know. He's, they, they, but at least they do have a lot of helpers now. And yes. I also noticed towards the end of this last season that they're laughing a lot more and they're, they're laughing at themselves when they realize they do something and it's going to be on TV. You could just see it like that. Part of their laughter is like, oh, no, this is going to be on TV and we're going to have to live with it. Or their kids say or do something. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty pretty pleased with that. And I really appreciate you turning me on to that because I just loved it. I don't think I would have found it on my own. It was a really good show. And I hope there's – I now that was like December 2019 was the last episode I watched. Ah. So God knows what they've been doing through this night. I through thought, the oh, pandemic, I it must be yet. very difficult when they haven't been able yes. to hold events yes. since yes. that's their primary income. Yes. Now, the only thing I can say is that they almost could do one event, social distanced, and everyone outside. But, I mean, now certainly they can do events because probably people are vaccinated. When the warm weather's out there, it's very different in warmer weather, yes. the pandemic, than it is in cold weather. So I found out I'm going to have to probably get a booster shot on my vaccine. So that's a when? new thing. When do you have I to think, do that? I think it would be in October, oh. September or October. Um, not the other vaccines, but the one I got, of course. Well, the, yeah. <laughs> the Dolly Parton one. <laughs> well, listen, Dolly we'll funded see. the damn thing. I know. She, she did good. Yes, she did. Dolly is a superhero in and my And if book. I need a little nip and tuck, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> So I've watched another show that I'm, I'm actually watching as it's streaming. Okay. Um, and that is season four of In Treatment. I never, completely forgot about it. Never mind that there's a 10-year gap between season three and season oh, four. Oh, my God. And where is Gabrielle Byrne? He is no longer in oh, the picture. Well. And is it, it, it's no longer in Baltimore. It's moved to L.A. And it's starring a woman, uh, Uzo I love her. Aduba. I love her. She's really good. Yeah. She's really, really good. And it's, it's quite fascinating because, oh. um, well, it's unlike anything normal that's episodic in that, right. well, nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's, it's half just, an hour. It's just people talk. They right. just talk. right. right. Um, oh. And there's, they have a, she has a number of patients, and then in the first three seasons, he would meet with his therapist, Tina. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yes, uh, who was awesome. Yes, and um, now um, the the new doctor uh, meets. Well, I've only seen the first fourth week, and okay. she meets with her sponsor. Oh, wow. Because we learned that she has some kind of substance abuse issue. And we had seen her before her sponsor shows up, have a drink. (laughs) So we don't know if that's what her demon is or if she has other demons. Right. Because it could could have been um, opiates. It could be exactly. Yeah. So, so she has her own inner turmoil and chaos, which mm-hmm. she has to completely hold together as she helps her patients through their own trials and tribulations. Right. And it's for a show in which nothing happens. It's awfully compelling. <laughs> I can't wait to watch it. And I completely forgot you told me it had been re- um, 
You'll Main catch up very quickly. I will. There's only maybe five is. No, I did start to watch Sons of Sam, and then I stopped because I didn't want it to be about um, conspiracy theory. But now I'm hearing that it's not necessarily about a conspiracy theory. Well, it's a. It's about. I. I've only seen part of it, a little bit yep. of it. Yep. Um, I've only but watched it, part of it. Yeah. It begins to focus on an author named Maury Terry. Very interesting. Um, who was trying to convince the police that David Berkowitz did not act alone. I know, that's and, pretty heavy. And he well, had... he didn't act alone. He did not act alone. He was taken, he was former military, just like uh, Mark Chapman. They were trained to be assassins. But they were let loose. That's why the rumor is that they're mentoring candidates, Eugene. Ah. And either they backfired or they were sent to do those killings, or they just something triggered them and they went and did it. Whether so the, you know. the, the first episode really goes back to the time in the seventies when when he was doing he or whoever yeah. he and whoever else were doing these killings, yeah. and um, one of the things that comes out is that there were all these different artist sketches of the killer, and they all look different. Yeah, and one of the artist sketches that they show looks very, very much like the son of the actual son of someone named Sam <laughs> who had the dog that Berkowitz okay. said that okay. he was being told what to do by the dead Labrador retriever. Right. Right. Correct. Um, so um, at the end of the first episode, we start to see that maybe there is some shred of sense to what this guy was saying like it's validity yeah yes and because um i think he was dismissed as a nutter because um they got the killer and he confessed to the killing and the killing stopped and i'm sorry to say that when i first watched the first few minutes of it and i saw where it was going i was like i don't want to watch a show about somebody who imagined something but then i kind of i kind of looked around and it was like maybe there is something to this Plus the fact of the, the theory of the CIA training that, that the person who shot Jody, not Jody Foster, for Jody Foster, there's just a lot of the, uh, people that do mass killing like the serial killers like this that were in the military for a little while. And that's why the argument is that they were trained to be a wake up killer. Which makes sense because people who want to shoot guns and kill people um, would be drawn to military organizations, to police forces. Right. And right? Military- because that's where, that's where you get to do that stuff yes. and it's legal. Right? Yes. And the CIA was experimenting with mind control for some of it for a weapon, weaponizing a human, right? Which is what the argument is that they weaponize these guys. So that if they need an assassination, Ella, a random- Jason Bourne. Yeah, a random guy wakes up and goes in and takes care of the assassination. It's not traceable because it's so random. It won't come back to the government. And then the second argument is that the CIA did fund mind control so that they could get techniques for interrogation. Um, and some of those experiments are in use to this day. Most of them were found out to be bullshit, but some of them did. And then there's all the casualties. That's why I keep telling you, you've got to see Wormwood. It's on Netflix, and it's really, really good, and I think you'll like the way it's produced. Um, And they talk about some of these things. 
So it's kind of going to relate to that idea. But I, I now am going to go back because even if he was a conspiracy theorist and even if he was wrong or right, he's become an interesting person to me since I started watching the first episode and talking to you and hearing what you're saying now. So I am yeah. going to watch it. I, I find it strangely compelling uh, material yeah. that I don't really want to know anything about. <laughs> you know, it's on the one I hand, I don't want to watch this. Let's just watch a few minutes more. Right. Right. No, I don't want to watch this. No, don't turn it off yet. Hey, some of those are the best TV shows. Some of them are really good. Well, so we've done a lot of cooking this week. And um, I love the hobo thing. And um, if anyone else has rigged up a cooking option or great things for camping, I'd love to hear about it. Oh, yeah. Camping recipes. Yeah. Send us, uh, send it all over to us. And also, if you would like to... Uh, uh, to join us to talk about uh, to talk about your favorite recipe on the comfort food right. diner. Um, well, send us your best pitch. We'll, maybe we'll make it happen. <laughs> okay, I think that's it, huh? That's talk it. Next week? Happy one okay. hundredth. Happy one hundredth episode, and thanks for listening. We love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.